Hello and welcome to Jade Talk Stuff. In today's episode, I'm going to be tackling earthquakes and tsunamis. Not physically tackling them. With the recent earthquakes, tsunami and volcanic eruption in Sulawesi in Indonesia, I thought it was highly relevant. The idea for this podcast episode came about as I had friends holidaying in Bali when the Sulawesi earthquake happened. And when I checked in with them to make sure they were okay, lots of questions came up. There was common knowledge to me having lived in New Zealand, but if you haven't lived in an earthquake-prone area, it's unlikely you'd know. Just like in Australia, most of us grow up close to the coast, and so learn to recognise beach conditions like rips, and common knowledge is of course to swim between the flags, but if you haven't grown up around beaches, you may not know that. Between living in Japan and New Zealand, I've experienced multiple earthquakes, mostly tiny ones, but some that were big enough to cause damage including a small tsunami in Wellington, which was caused by an earthquake in Chile. So I thought it would be handy for those that live in a country that isn't prone to these disasters to get an idea of what to do in case you find yourself in an earthquake-prone region whilst on holiday somewhere. There's plenty of other scientific podcasts and YouTube videos about what causes an earthquake, so this podcast is specifically about my experiences, about what to do and how to prepare. One of the scariest things about living in an earthquake zone is there is little warning. The first thing you'll hear is the sound, which can resemble a rumble, something similar to a heavy truck passing by. Usually, a few microseconds later is when you'll feel the movement, which may last a few seconds up to a few minutes. The worst part is you never know how big it's going to be. It might just be a single shake, Or it could be the next big one that scientists predict is long overdue in any particular earthquake region. Different earthquakes cause different movement. Sometimes you might have a side-to-side swaying movement. Other earthquakes might cause an up-and-down jolt, whilst others are more of a vibration. Even then, the movement can vary depending on what building you're in. When I was living in Kyoto, in Japan, we'd regularly have small earthquakes, and living in a wooden house, I would feel most of them. I remember on numerous occasions thinking, is this going to be big enough to warrant getting up out of bed for? Usually it wasn't, so I'd just roll over and go back to sleep. On those occasions, you'd feel the bed wobble and vibrate like someone was shaking the bed. The biggest earthquake I experienced in Kyoto, Japan, was about a 3 or 4 magnitude. I remember being in a supermarket, and all the bottles started clanging, and then I noticed the shelves swaying. I froze, but most people just continued their shopping as if nothing was happening. After a larger earthquake, like 3 or 4 magnitude or above, your sense of balance is going to be thrown out of whack, and you often feel like you've just gotten off a big roller coaster. I would feel nauseous, I guess something akin to being seasick, but that doesn't happen to everyone, which is ironic because I don't usually get seasick. The biggest earthquake I've experienced was in New Zealand. It was something like a 6.5 magnitude, and was about 30 kilometres away from Wellington, in Cook Strait. The building I was in was down by the harbour, which is all reclaimed land, which is silty, but this building was supposed to be earthquake-proof. I mean, it didn't fall down, but it shook like crazy. I remember I was having lunch, and there was a busy road adjacent to our building, and at first I thought a truck had hit the building, but then one of my colleagues who was sitting opposite me was like, Earthquake! and jumped under the table. So I did too. It lasted for about a minute or two, and it was big enough to warrant an evacuation. A few ceiling panels fell down, and many things fell off desks, but 
but in offices in New Zealand, everything is strapped down and bolted to walls to prevent injuries. Every building has an earthquake plan to account for everyone, and engineers had to check the building didn't suffer any structural damage. So on that day, we all grabbed a gelato whilst we waited, and then eventually we got sent home early. After that earthquake, I had to walk home, because buses were in short supply due to the train network shutting down, and power was cut off. Mostly Wellington used electric trolley buses, and of course none of these were working after the earthquake. There's only one main road out of Wellington, and police were stopping every car and loading it up with people who lived in the same area. Which, when you see that work in an emergency, you have to wonder why it can't work every day. I remember walking home and seeing telegraph poles and trees shaking like mad in multiple aftershocks. My house was wooden and fibro, so in other words, not very solid, but most houses in New Zealand are wooden, so they can flex and bend in earthquakes. I was on the bottom floor of a two-storey building, and one of my biggest fears was that upstairs would collapse on top of me in a big earthquake. I mean, there is a building code in New Zealand, but that doesn't stop fear creeping in. Part of the reason why the Christchurch earthquake was so bad in 2012 was because a lot of houses in Christchurch were made of brick, plus the earthquake was shallow, which always causes more damage. During the Christchurch earthquake, we did feel it in Wellington. I then visited Christchurch in 2014, two years later, and within the red zone, which was the main area of the CBD that was worst affected. It was still a desolate mess of potholes, empty buildings and destruction, where people had left during the earthquake and no one had returned since. There were brand new hotels, with windows smashed, now taken over by pigeons. And there was restaurants with plates on tables, still empty, and mostly, it was silent. There's a poem I wrote which perfectly sums up Wandering the Red Zone in Christchurch, which you can hear at the end of my other podcast, Travelosophy, in episode one. The problem with rebuilding after an earthquake, besides money, is often there's aftershocks, and one earthquake can trigger more earthquakes down the line, and often ground becomes unusable due to liquefaction, which occurs when groundwater seeps up, causing soil to become like quicksand. Whilst there's areas that are prone to earthquakes like Indonesia, Japan and New Zealand, they can still happen anywhere. Newcastle in New South Wales had a big one in 1999, and Perth in Western Australia recently had one too. Not every earthquake causes a tsunami, and not every tsunami is caused by an earthquake. There have been instances of landslides and even ice carvings that have caused tsunamis, which is common in areas like Greenland and Canada. There was also a tsunami-like wave that washed over a dam in northern Italy in the 60s that was caused by a landslide which completely destroyed a nearby village. Usually tsunamis, like the massive one in Sendai in Japan in 2011, occur when one plate flicks up, displacing water, which causes a wave to form. However, the recent earthquake in Sulawesi was a side-by-side movement, where two plates just rubbed against each other. So how did this cause a tsunami? Scientists have recently discovered that some earthquakes cause underwater landslides, consisting of rock and sand, and at times it's these landslides that can actually trigger a tsunami. But what made the Sulawesi one so bad was a combination of factors. First, the town of Palu is at the end of a narrow, long bay, so water had a chance to be funnelled in, gaining height. What started as a 4-6 to centimetre tsunami soon developed into a six-metre-high tsunami. Also, there was underwater sensors installed, but they weren't switched on, 
so whilst a general tsunami warning was issued, it was apparently soon called off. Many of the buildings in Palu were built with wood and fibro, which buckled under the force of the water, causing huge amounts of debris to build up. Sections of town that were built mostly from cement survived the tsunami, but it's a catch-22 because one of the hotels in Palu that saw a significant loss of life crumbled in the earthquake and looked to be made from cement. In many tsunamis, it's not necessarily the water that's the danger, it's the debris that gets picked up, like cars, wood, even sheets of metal. So it's not drowning that will get you, it's being knocked unconscious or suffering a severe wound from getting jabbed that's the biggest concern. When I lived in Wellington, one summer, they painted tsunami safe zones in the streets around the coast. In theory, if you ran beyond this line, which was a combination of distance from the coast as well as height above sea level, you'd be safe. But one of the things the Japan tsunami showed was that if the earthquake was big enough, these zones became meaningless. In the case of Japan, the designated safe zones should have been three or four times further inland than what they were, with some areas measuring wave heights of up to 40 metres high, and this was 400 metres inland, or in other words, over 100 feet high. Tsunamis are weird in that I'm both terrified of them and also fascinated. They're mesmerising and awe-inspiring and absolutely horrific. Seeing a tsunami is proof that humans do not control the earth. The scary thing about tsunamis, apart from the obvious unstoppable wall of water, is like a storm surge. The water comes in, but then it recedes out again, taking with it bodies as well as debris. So in the case of the Boxing Day and Japan tsunamis, likely the same case with the Sulawesi tsunami, thousands of people are never found. No trace. It's like instantly thousands of people disappeared from Earth. When you have kids caught up amongst this, especially young kids, it's horrific. Although there was a positive story. There was a case of a four-year-old girl, Rahul Hatul Jana, in Banda Asa in Indonesia, who survived the 2004 tsunami. But her family, after a month of looking for her, presumed she was dead. However, she'd been found and taken in by a woman in a nearby village and brought up. And ten years later, her uncle saw her and recognised her and managed to reinstate her with her family. One of the ways scientists know about recurring earthquakes and tsunamis is through geology. And according to geoscientists, and which has also been corroborated by stories passed down from indigenous locals, there's been regular massive tsunamis in the Pacific Northwest approximately every 500 years. And of course, they're overdue for another one. Ironically, since I started preparing this podcast, there was an earthquake in the Blue Mountains near where I live. And of all things, I was in Sydney that day, so I didn't get to experience it. It wasn't very big, I think it was 2.4 magnitude, but it was shallow, so it was widely felt. As Australia sits on its own plate, it rarely receives earthquakes. Although surrounded by coastline, it has received tsunamis in the past, from as far as Chile. The closest plate junction that is likely to cause an earthquake big enough to potentially foster a tsunami that would affect Australia is in either Indonesia or New Zealand. Thus it would take between 90 minutes and a few hours for a tsunami to arrive on the shores of Australia. Besides international monitoring stations, there is a set of deep water buoys off the coast of Australia with sensors to detect potential tsunamis. And in Japan, they also have an earthquake warning system with underground monitors and GPS satellites but at best, these will give about a minute's warning. So, 
Let's say you're on holiday having your coconut juice and banana pancakes for breakfast. It's hot, you've got your sarong, and everything starts shaking. What do you do? For many people, they instantly want to run outside. But in the case in Palu, and in the Christchurch earthquake, many injuries and even deaths occurred from people running outside, and who were then hit by falling debris, especially bricks and concrete or windows. In New Zealand, the general information given by the Civil Defence, which is the equivalent of the Volunteer Emergency Services, is to stop, drop and hold. So crouch down, create a space around you by going under a table, cover your head and hold onto the table legs. Being under a table or next to a solar piece of furniture like a couch will help create space. But obviously don't get next to a bookcase that can fall over or alongside anything with objects that can fall onto you. Keep clear of windows, doors and cupboards that can fling open or shatter their contents during an earthquake. Once the initial shaking has stopped and it's safe to move outside, then do so. But be prepared for further movements and aftershocks. In some cases, the aftershocks can be bigger than the initial quake. If you're already outside, the same applies. Stop, drop and hold onto something solid. But just be aware that telegraph poles and trees can easily topple in a quake. So worst case, stay low, protect your head and neck with your hands. If you're near the coast, head to higher ground immediately after the shaking stops. Tsunamis can occur from a wide variety of quakes. And when you're in one, it's difficult to know exactly what type of quake you just experienced. Of course, in mountainous areas, there's the danger of landslides and landslips, which can cause falling rocks, especially if there's been recent heavy rain. If you're in a building and the building collapses, which does happen in a strong earthquake, your best chance of survival is to have space around you, so you can breathe. And by being tucked in like a turtle, there's less chance of a limb being caught by falling debris. Creating space around you hopefully means worst case scenario, you can move enough to create a sound to alert rescuers. So it's one of those things that I know sounds ridiculous, but thinking, what's my exit route, wherever you are, is a fact of living in disaster zones especially when tsunamis are a potential threat. When I lived in New Zealand, any time I was near the coast, I'd be constantly thinking, where can I run in order to escape a tsunami? Many houses along the coast have pathways up the hills behind them with potential safety routes, and now in tourist beach areas there is often tsunami signs directing you away from the coast. The recommended minimum height is at least 30 metres, or 100 feet above sea level. But it all depends on the earthquake and the land formation near the coast as to how high the waves and surge will reach. A tsunami isn't necessarily a single giant wave. Although they can reach extreme heights, more often we see tsunamis of multiple sets of waves with immense power trundling through so that even when they hit the coast, they continue on pounding their way inland. Also, the first wave may not be the biggest either. And whilst they may not appear to have much height or strength once they head inland, it's the debris that gets collected along the way that is most often destructive. Trees, cars, houses, even boats like oil tankers have been pushed inland from the power behind tsunamis. If you're already in a boat, the safest place is further out to sea. Ultimately, when you're on land near the coast during an earthquake, you want to get as high as possible, whether that's in a tall building, at least 8 to 10 stories high, or up a hill or a mountain. Unless you're on a motorbike, the chances of outrunning a tsunami are slim, unless you've been given sufficient warning. But there have been plenty of people who have managed to climb up a tree and survived. In New Zealand, I often dreamt about massive earthquakes and tsunamis. 
and no, they weren't prophetic. I think it was partly anxiety because you never know when one was going to strike and you regularly saw ads about how to stay safe and it was recommended to keep a grab bag and supplies, including food, water and medicine for up to a week. They also suggest keeping cash because if power goes out, if POS is gone and a first aid kit. So if you find yourself in an earthquake zone on holiday, keep important stuff like your passport and credit cards and cash with you at all times. I mean, you should anyway, right next to you in the hotel. Keep a lookout when you're on the coast. If the wave suddenly retreats or you see waves on the horizon, get somewhere safe. There's plenty of disaster apps you can download that notify you of earthquakes, tsunamis, flooding storms and volcanic eruptions, along with Twitter accounts that can also send you alerts. As evident in the 2004 Boxing Day and the recent Sulawesi tsunami, warning systems aren't always in place reliable, or even switched on in poorer nations, so it's always better to be safe. If you're staying in an earthquake-prone area, they should have evacuation routes marked on the back of the door in the hotel, and signs on the street near beaches. It may sound over the top, but it's worth doing a dry run, because in an emergency, when there may be debris, it's easier to panic. Often, after a bad earthquake, cell phones won't work. You'll probably have no power and potentially no running tap water. So have a plan in place that doesn't rely on these. Most importantly, everyone you're traveling with should know the plan. During the massive tsunami in Japan, a number of people died trying to head to town to pick up their kids from daycare. But the daycare plan was to evacuate the children to a nearby hill. In many cases, the kids survived, but their parents didn't because everyone had different plans. So make sure everyone knows the plan to get to safety and most importantly, sticks to it. It's easy to say these things in hindsight and when you're not in a state of emergency, but the more preparation and planning and practice you can do before you find yourself in an emergency, the higher the chance you'll come out safely. Post-disaster, especially if you're on an island, the hardest part will be trying to get out. Travel insurance generally doesn't cover so-called acts of God, so be sure to read your insurance policy about whether they will airlift you out. They may only do so in the event of an injury. And depending on the policy, it may only be the injured person. Often the airport is closed because of structural damage, or in the case of the Japan tsunami, the main airport in that region was submerged underwater. So it could be that you'll have to wait a few days or a week or more before you can get out. I wasn't intending for this podcast to be a downer. It's more about getting you to think about things you may not have considered. Because I know prior to living in an earthquake-prone area, I had never thought about having a grab bag ready or any of the other preparedness that comes with living in potential disaster zones. And so I thought some listeners may learn from it too. Hopefully you'll never find yourself in a situation that requires it, but it's always better to be prepared than not. Thank you so much for listening to Jade Talk Stuff. If you love it, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get yours from. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends. If you love travel, then check out my other podcast, Travelosophy, which features life lessons learnt from travel. If you want to decorate your house or you need Christmas presents, then head to my online shop found at jadejackson.com.au forward slash shop, where you can purchase prints and canvas art of any of my incredible travel photos. That's jadejackson.com.au forward slash shop. Or you can easily find it in the menu on my website. And all sales directly help support an independent creative. So thank you. If you would like exclusive content like extra podcast episodes, 
downloads of my photos and handwritten content, then check out patreon.com slash jjackson, where you can also show your love for my podcasts by subscribing and sending a few dollars a month my way in exchange for exclusive content. That's patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson. Lastly, send me a tweet at Jadikins Jackson or send me a voicemail message and say hi on Facebook via Travelosophy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Jade Talk Stuff. Bye-bye now.